Welcome to This Week in Photo. Bandwidth for this podcast is brought to you by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This episode of TWIP is brought to you by Carbonite Online Backup. Automatic and secure backup for your home and small business computer files starting at only $59 a year. Try it free at Carbonite.com and use the offer code TWIP and get two bonus months with purchase. This week on TWIP, I am traveling in London right now and I'm kind of trying unsuccessfully to get harassed by the police for taking pictures. Okay, I'm not really trying, but so far I'm really enjoying London very much, even in the rain. However, because I'm traveling, we don't have a regular show for you this week. Instead, we're giving you a very special interview. But only listen to this one if you care about digital media. Okay, I'm here with Mr. Jeff Carrion. He's a digital media specialist at DePaul University in the Windy City, Chicago. And he is, uh, well, among other things, we're going to talk about exactly what a digital media specialist is, but also, you know, what it takes to instruct people who don't necessarily come from a photo photography background in photography. Um, and also, the one thing that we were talking about off air a little bit is his sort of meticulous attention to detail with regard to storage and data storage workflow and that sort of thing. So we're going to go into all that in this interview. So, Jeff, welcome to This Week in Photo. Thanks, Fred. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's our pleasure and my pleasure. Okay, let's start off with you. I like to, when I have someone new on the show, I like to introduce them so and sort of get into their history of photography. So take me back in you know the the early days 15 20 mm-hmm. years ago when you when you first sort of decided that this imaging thing or photography thing was something that you'd like to do more of what uh what got you going well uh it's not an uncommon story like most people uh, my dad had an old um Nikon I don't even know what the model it was but the old Nikon manual camera that he used to let me play around with and those kind of things because, of course, the good thing about those cameras is that you can give them to a child and you don't have to worry that they're going to break them because yeah. you could pound nails with those cameras back in those days. So I actually have, if you look back through my mom's photo albums, you'll see pictures of me when I was probably five or six years old running around with the camera taking pictures. And I can clearly remember being that young and having creative images in my head and like being able to see like creative photographs of like my toys like a race car and then taking my dad's camera and actually like screwing on the macro lenses he had a macro lens just screw on filters on the front yeah yeah and i would screw those on and i'd take like these close-up pictures of like my race cars and things like that and they'd be on the roll of film with like the family vacation that they use and they were flipping through them to be like where did these come from who did these (laughs) and it was me you know five six years old so I kind of always had that photographic vision in my head and kind of always knew that the visual arts in some way was going to be what I did. You're lucky. You're lucky because a lot of people, I mean, I'm sure there's senior citizens that are out there today. They're like, I'm not sure what I want to do with my life, you know, so yeah. to figure it out when you're still a kid and you're still in your formative years. I think that's a that's a gift because I don't know. I know I didn't really figure out that I wanted to be a, a photographer or in this multimedia area until, geez, I want to say my early 20s, maybe. Mm hmm. Well, I think sometimes it's not so much a gift as it is that it takes guts yeah. to do it. 
Yeah. Um, so basically, you're that... saying I'm gutless. I was gutless. Like, it's not so much nowadays because, you know, since I do work at a university, I know that there are a lot, there's a lot more um, out there for creative um, uh, uh, professions. Yeah. Um, but back even, I graduated college in like 2000, right? And then, so even back then and before that, creative uh, professions were not popular. And like, especially coming out of high school and your parents told you to pick a major and do something. If you said, I want to be a dancer or I want to be a singer, they'd say, you're crazy. Now go be an administrator in business. And things yeah. Like that. MBA, doctor, lawyer, or something like that. Something stable, right? Yeah. And I had a lot of friends who in high school that we had a lot of fun in theater and in music and things like that. But they never even considered pursuing it just because of the pressure to go to college and to pick something that was safe. And in a lot of cases, maybe it's a good idea because doing a creative profession is not easy. You know, it's, it's certainly not as easy as you know being you know in business or in the corporate world or that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah but yeah, I, I think it comes back to you know sometimes it just takes more guts than it does a gift. And I even went through a process where when I graduated high school. Uh, instead of going to college right away for like a major in photography or film or anything like that, I went to a community college for a couple of years and just took my liberal arts classes, my math and my science, just to kind of sit there and wait and figure it out. And I told myself, okay, I'll go to community college for two years. And if I still want to be in video and photography at the end of two years, then I'll go for it. And I won't bother wasting my parents' money in college. Yeah. And by the end of the two years, I still wanted to do it more than ever. And I actually went to college. I went to Columbia College in Chicago for video production. And uh, I graduated with that. All right, guys. Uh, it is time for a nod to our sponsor. This episode of This Week in Photo is brought to you by Carbonite Online Backup. They're automatic and secure backup for your home and small business computers, computer files. And they start at only 59 bucks a year. The interesting thing about these online services, you may have noticed there's lots of cloud-based services that are coming up that basically put a hard put a folder on your computer, you drag stuff into it, and it's in the cloud like Dropbox, etc. But where Carbonite comes in is it's automatic online and offsite. So you once you set it up, the folders or even your entire drive that you specify gets pumped up to the cloud. And if something catastrophic happens, like you know someone breaks into your house, something happens to your house your computer goes up in flames or whatever, your stuff is always safely in the cloud and it's continually backing up. So it's not like, okay, every night at 6 p.m. or every day at 6 p.m. the files get put up there. It's continually and automatically backing up. And they've got over 1 million customers right now that are using the service. Like I said, they've got plans that start at $59 a year. And the cool, one of the cool things is you can access these the backed up files privately on any computer, your smartphone, your iPad, etc., with a free app. So you can definitely check that stuff out. Um, so check them out. They're at Carbonite.com, and with the offer code TWIP, that's our initials, TWIP, you'll get two bonus months for free if you decide to buy it. Let's use the offer code TWIP at Carbonite.com. So, so tell me about the industry in general. So, uh, you know, educators, I, I look at you guys as you're sort of, you know, you got your finger on where, what people are doing in the industry. Maybe, you know, not directly, but, you know, just sort of the, the temperature of a student, say, coming in and if they're, if they're leaving and 
you know, I know you're doing something a little different at DePaul, but if they were leaving and they're specifically going to move into the, the area of photography, how does the market look for a photographer today? I mean, is it, you know, if, if, in other words, if a photographer, if someone says like you, you know, hey, at an early age, I figured out I wanted to do this stuff. Um, and each, are they going to be eating ramen noodles or are they going to be driving a Ferrari? What do you think? <laughs> well, what do you think the answer to that is? I know the answer. Do you have a Ferrari outside? I, do, I have a Ford outside. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, I don't have a Ferrari either. <laughs> I, I think in a lot of ways no, nothing has changed in that regard since when I was in college, which wasn't all that long ago versus now. Um, I, I think what the where the disparity comes from is what students think is going to happen after graduation versus what will happen after graduation. Because mm-hmm. a lot of times uh, an inst- a college or an institution, especially in their marketing, might really pump up you know, the opportunity and everything like that. And students who want to come out and think they're going to be you know, the A1 prime shooter out there, you know, the senior shooter doing everything, calling the shots, being the director, mm-hmm. being the producer. And they don't, they don't necessarily realize, you know, in their junior or senior year that they're going to have to be the assistant for and the apprentice for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, working for free or being the intern or that kind of thing for a yeah. couple of years until they can really cut their teeth and do it. So in that way, it hasn't changed and it probably, you know, never will change. Yeah. All right, let, let's switch gears a little bit. I got some notes here to make sure I hit on everything. So tell me a little bit about what you're doing at DePaul. So you, you're... You know, we talked about your title having digital media in there. What is what does that mean, and how are you? You know, what do you do day to day? Well, the digital media specialist is a the title is a corporate invention that I don't really exactly know what it means for sure. <laughs> but uh, basically, at the Paul, I work in their public relations department, and uh, being the digital media specialist mostly means I'm the only guy in the office that uses a Mac. Gotcha. And so <laughs> You're the I Mac do, guy. So digital yeah. media specialist translates to Mac guy, right? Yeah, pretty much. Or, yeah. or th- we call Jeff when our iPhones are need to be reset, and he'll tell us what to do. Gotcha. Uh, but I also do. But I primarily I am a, I'm the public relations photographer here at DePaul. So I go around and I shoot all the university events and things like that, where the administration and the president and all those people where they're doing all their stuff and you know and that's a lot of typical like banquets and dinners and lunches and keynote presentations and grips and grins and that kind of thing yeah um but then i also do video public relations video for the university so we produce videos that have to do with our various public relations initiatives uh and those can be anything they can be short little um facebook kind of geared social media videos that are for quick hits and just to generate some buzz and traffic to um you know much larger uh, videos that contain messages that we want to get out about the university. Yeah. Uh, plus, I also do you know just about any other kind of media-related activity around here, whether it's a podcast or uh, training series videos or photography for other purposes or you know, all kinds of things like that. So I've got I've got materials and projects coming at me from all over the place. Usually, people come in and they say we have some sort of content, we have some sort of thing we want to do but we don't know what to do and then they look to me to kind of say well this is the best tool for the, the what you're trying to communicate you sounds like you're kind of like uh what was that fairy tale uh rumpelstiltskin 
So you have to. Your job is to weave straw into gold somehow. <laughs> so they bring they bring yeah. you the assets and and you disappear behind a wall and come back with cool stuff that. Mm-hmm. Uh, from well, what that's what every photographer or videographer does. It's, the client comes and gives you a big pile of stuff that's a big mess, and they say, "Here, do do your stuff. Make it look good. Do your creative do your digital thing with your Mac." thing over there yeah. yeah and then you wow them and then they change a little bit just to feel important and then you move on i gotta tell you you sound from the way you describe what you're doing over there i i coined a phrase a couple of years ago called a multimediographer it sounds like that's what you are you're the that sounds good you're the multimediographer <laughs> for the depaul university <laughs> which is, mm-hmm. yeah, which is the wave of the future right good. yeah Okay, so let's talk about workflow. So with all this data coming in and all these different things that you're doing and you got students flowing in and out of there, you must be generating a lot of information and a lot of information that you can't just say, okay, we're done with this, put it in the trash can and empty the trash. What are you doing? I mean, how do you, how do you manage this stuff from soup to nuts? Well, uh, yeah, data management and just organization and workflow mm-hmm. is a huge deal. Um, Mostly because my position was created new um, just a couple of years ago, and they hired me new, so there was nothing. So I basically walked into an empty office with a phone on the floor, and they said, okay, here's you have a budget. Get whatever you need and do whatever you need to do. So oh, fortunately, liberating. I came in. That's liberating, man. <laughs> awesome. it, it was nice. It, yeah. was, it was a lot of fun to be able to actually research and purchase like everything. I mean, how often do you get to do that? Not very, very often, yeah. Yeah, so that's, that was a lot of fun. But I, I had to come in with a workflow because uh, I knew I was going to come in and there were a, a lot of stuff was going to happen right away and people are going to want stuff. Since I, I'm, I'm, contact, I'm contacted by everyone throughout the university, and DePaul is the largest Catholic university in the United States. We have 26,000 students and uh, several thousand faculty and staff. So, I mean, it's a major with five or six campuses sprinkled throughout the Chicagoland area. Wow. So it's a major university. This isn't just a little community college. Yeah. So there's a lot coming in from all over the place, and all that needs to be organized all the time. And so what I use, and actually what I learned from uh, uh, my mentor at my previous job, uh, um, a guy named Tom at a place called Edictions um, here in Chicago. You say that He's again? You were, you were dropping out a little mentor. bit. From where? Where was that? Uh my predecessor, the place I worked before, um, my uh, my mentor, um, his name is Tom, and he worked at a place called Edit Creations. Got it, Edit Creations. Okay. Um, and yeah, and he's he's been a video editor in the Chicago area for years and years and years, so he knows everything about everything. And he showed me a workflow, and I think it's kind of a common workflow that a lot of people use in one way or another. But it's a um, it's a template, it's a project folder template based workflow, where you have a project template folder that's set up and it has a naming convention attached to it. Typically it begins with a project number and that number could be any sort of convention you want it to be. It could be a series of letters with an incrementing number or something like that. Like my my um, my project numbers, it's PR-000001 was like the first one I did. So mm-hmm. I figured I'd give myself you know, 99,000 worth of projects <laughs> yeah. before I have to restart. A little, a little space in there for growth, right? Yeah, yeah. Just give me a little bit of space. And then there's a name, some sort of descriptive name of the project. You know, it would be like, you know, graduation 2012. And then some sort of a date code. But yours can be any way you want it to be. But as long as there's some sort of incrementing number, a description, and some sort of date, then you can really assure yourself that you're not going to have any anything repeating itself, especially mm-hmm. if you do 
the same job year over year, you know, if you do the the same photo shoot year over year going back and forth, you can give it the same name, but you know the date is going to increment or the number is going to increment. And it also helps in searching in that you can just search your computer um, system-wide for that project number, and everything you have is going to be attached to that number. So right off the bat, it keeps things organized. And this main project folder, inside in mine, I think I have about, I think there's 12 subfolders in it. Mm -hmm. And this is all set up in advance. You set up a blank one to start with. And those 12 subfolders are attached to all of the various types of media that I could, would ever require, acquire or generate for any project. Yep. Whether it's um, camera originals, be they photo or video, or if they're documents like uh, spreadsheets or text documents or PDFs, um, if they're images, either bitmap or vector-based, um, Final Cut Pro projects, After Effects projects, Photoshop projects, Illustrator projects, um, DVD Studio Pro, compressor exports, um, audio. And so I have this 15 all these 15 folders, and in, in, within some of those folders are another set of subfolders, and it kind of drills down based on the folder. And these are all empty when you start, right? So this is just an empty template with nested folders that are named appropriately that you can just duplicate and then start filling them up, right? That's exactly it, yeah. And you would you'd probably customize it based on whatever you use. Like if you use Encore and Premiere instead of Final Cut, in After Effects, you would do that. Or if you use Lightroom versus Aperture, you would do it like that. Sure. So, like, for instance, in my, there's the main project folder. There's a subfolder for Final Cut Pro. In that Final Cut Pro folder is a project file folder, a project backup folder, an exports folder. Within that exports folder is a, a proofs and a frames and a final master folder. So it can drill down quite a bit. Wow. And then even on that, in some for some of my main projects like Final Cut Pro projects, I will actually have a Final Cut Pro project template within that folder. So you could launch, so that gets duplicated along with it. And within, when you launch that Final Cut Pro project, that has bins already set up in it to hold your audio and your video and your clips and your all kinds of things in that. So there's another template folder. There's a project that gets duplicated with that as well. So what you have is a main folder that when a new project comes in and everything qualifies as a new project, even if it's, even if it's going to be one Excel spreadsheet for just one little thing that you just take in and you make a change and you email it out to someone, mm -hmm. that gets a project. And I use a little um, app. It's called Post Haste. Mm -hmm. It's from a little company called Digital Rebellion, which I kind of found. It's a little free app for Mac which actually does the duplicating of the project folder in an automated oh, really way. Really cool. You'll have to you have to send me that so I can include it in this. Yeah, it's a great it's an awesome pick of the week. Okay. But cool. You just type it in and you put the information in, it duplicates the folder, it puts it on your media drive wherever you need to have it and then it 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 will rename um, the projects you have in there like it'll rename the Final Cut Pro project with the project name. So everything's all done for oh, you. Like that's I have. Great. Um, that's awesome. I was wondering if you use something like that. I was gonna. I was gonna ask you if you. There's an app called Hazel on the Mac. Have you heard of that one? No, I haven't. It's called Hazel, where it basically allows you to apply rules to a folder or series of folders like what you're using. So you could say, and you could you could have rules run based on what you name the the file or based on a label on the file or when the file was created. Uh -huh. So you could yeah. say you could name a file with your naming convention with the date in there somehow and 
you know, the kind of media it is on the extension. And when you drop it into this folder that Hazel is watching, it would do all sorts of magic to it and put it in the right place and, you know, even run Apple scripts on the folder or on the file if you wanted to. So Yeah, it sounds like pretty much the same thing, but probably to a little bit lesser of a degree. Yeah. And this yeah. one's called Post Haste? Post Haste. Okay, cool. Yeah. Kind right. of speed up your, your post process. Awesome. So that that's how the workflow begins. Is there any time something comes in, go to post haste, you make your new project, then you instantly have a place to be completely organized because you know there already is a destination for any type of media you could get for that project. Mm-hmm. And the best thing about that is that you never have to wonder where you put anything. Yeah. When you go back months later and you say, oh, well, where was the you know documentation on that one photo shoot I did or where was that model release that I got from that guy when I was shooting that thing? You just you go to the project, you have a documents folder, your model releases are in that documents folder, and you go you can go exactly right to it. That's clean because what that what that makes me think of it's kind of like in the in well in most large environments like say the military or corporate America, like say the the concept of an MRD or marketing requirements document is the idea is that if you were somehow to vanish off the face of the earth for some reason, somebody could come behind you and pick up where you were and not have to recreate the wheel for everything. And it sounds like you've done that with this, mm-hmm. with this sort of methodology. If somebody, if you were to like say go on vacation or whatever and someone else needed to step in to fill your shoes, they could very easily figure out where the projects were and what's in there and how to find A and all that stuff, right? Well, it, it, I mean, that's exactly right in, in my case, but it's even better for photographers who hire assistants all the time and then maybe that assistant is the one who's organizing media, then they're never going to screw it up. If they, they can learn the system really quickly and it's intuitive because there's always a place, and so the photographer can come back later and know exactly where the assistant put things. And even if they have multiple people coming in, multiple people doing different things, everything's going to be organized in the same way and not just at the whim of whatever they were thinking at the time. Yeah. All right, here, here's, here's the, the million-dollar question. Um, you have this wonderful hierarchy built and the system going on, but the single point of failure is the hard drive, right? So do you, what's your methodology or what's your system for making sure that all that data and all those beautiful projects and file structures <laughs> are replicated someplace so that if lightning strikes one of those drives, you don't lose everything? Because that would be a nightmare trying to recreate all that stuff, especially yeah. with all the hierarchies that you have. Yeah. Well, uh uh, that, that's a question I haven't fully answered yet, but I have a couple things in place right now. Like pretty much what I have right now is I have I, you know, I run off of G drives, um, like um, the G raids, yeah. which are the small self-contained um, FireWire 800 raids. So I'll buy two of those at a time, and I'll just set them up with ChronoSync that will back that will mirror them to each other every day. Mm-hmm. So that's you know, an obvious first line of defense. Perfect, yeah. At least I, you have a copy. That's the that's yeah. the main thing, yeah. yeah. And hopefully most people sort of do that. If And it's not automated, they maybe do it once a month or, or something like that's, that. That's pretty much what I do. I've got two Drobos, which is, uh, are you familiar with the Drobo? Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I've got two of those sitting right here. And one of them is just a mirror of the other one. And all my data is on one and every... Every day, I think I've got it set for 4 a.m. or something. At 4 a.m., the computer wakes up and looks at the deltas that changed on one drive and mirrors them to the other drive. And that's it. 
So okay. if OneDrive goes away, then I can, which is which has happened, <laughs> mm-hmm. I can go to the backup or vice versa. So yeah, I yeah, mean, that, that's the first line of defense. Yeah, Drobo's great for that, and I like the reason I use G drives is because I do video editing, so I need the speed. So oh, I couldn't right. really work use Drobo as a working drive, but um, they're yeah, Drobo's are great for backup. And most people, when they buy drives anyway, they should factor that cost into. Is that you should look at what the cost of the drive is, and then figure you need to buy two. Multiply it. Yeah, yeah. My friend you know, Alex Alex Lindsay says that um, uh, he he claims data doesn't truly exist unless it's unless it exists in three places. So, which means none of my mm-hmm. data exists. I have zero data right now because it, really, it only exists in two places right now. The third place, ideally, which I was going to try to do, and Ron Brinkman, another friend of mine, he um, he backs all this stuff up to the cloud using one of those services like Backblaze or you know. So all his data is in the cloud. My problem is I have so much data that it would take me forever to get it to the cloud. And I'm always creating, like I'm creating data now in this interview, right? So Mm -hmm. to get, I'm I'm always behind. There's no way for me to stay ahead. So I'm, I'm in some ways living life on the edge with just having two backups. Yeah, for most creative professionals like us, like the cloud storage is fine for your system drive or like a, a sort of time machine type backup, like the purpose of if Time Machine were backing up your system drive, that would be fine. But we're generating, you know, I could go easily in a day, I could generate several hundred gigabytes in a day. And that would take months to upload to, you know, something like Carbonite or CrashPlan or something like that. Yeah. And even those services like CrashPlan you mentioned, they have this, this thing where you can send them a drive full of data and they'll just load it onto their servers so you get a head start and you don't have to go through the upload piece. But even then, the even time then, it takes yeah. for the data, you know, for them to upload it on there, will have created more data, which is, you know, so it just goes on and on. So I got, I have to figure that out somehow. How to, the I, for me, the holy grail is to have this. What I have here right now, my redundancy. So I've got like triple redundancy because the Drobos are inherently redundant. And then I've got redundancy of the Drobo, so it's overkill here. But if my house burns down. <laughs> You know, then everything's gone. So I need to get things off-site somehow as well. That's that's the next step for me. Well, I do I do one other thing, and then I'm looking to do another thing because it's kind of a bigger investment that we're taking a little bit of time figuring out. Mm-hmm. Um, so the other thing I do is since I, I do a lot of, I, I'd say I probably do 70-30 photography to video and other stuff. So most of the things I do is photography around here. So I use SmugMug, the SmugMug Pro account, to mm. as a sort of online backup of sure. everything. Yep. So um, I know they make um, uh, plugins for Aperture that, like a SmugMug plugin app for Aperture that will automatically upload your projects and your galleries to your SmugMug account. Yeah. So I do that, and SmugMug is unlimited. It's right. It's like sixty bucks a year or something like that, and yeah. you get unlimited storage. So that serves as I upload JPEGs, you know, full resolution full-size JPEGs of everything I shoot to SmugMug, and they're password-protected so no one can see them. It's not for public use, so they can sit there and they can live and be safe. But that, that's, the, that's the somewhat catch-22. I use SmugMug as well. I love them. But um, it's JPEG only, right? So what about your RAW files? Yeah. And the RAWs yeah. are the masters. So you got to figure out – and those are the gigantic ones that you could recreate mm-hmm. those JPEGs from. So yeah. where, do, where do you store the ingredients, not just the cakes? <laughs> <You know? laughs> So, well, I mean, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, as long as you have the image, 
Right. You know, in an emergency, that's, you know, as much as you need. But like, the thing we're looking into um, in the future that we will incorporate in some way is, um, and we use this at my at the place I was at previous at, at, at a Creations, is um, uh, it's a system with, uh, it's called LTO tape. Have you heard of LTO? Mm, no, I don't think so. I don't know what it, LTO stands for. It's like linear tape something, but it's a tape cartridge format, mm-hmm. and it's a standard cartridge format like a beta tape or a cassette tape or an 8-track tape. There's a tape style called LTO and you can buy drives from various manufacturers. You can buy LTO tape from various manufacturers like Sony or something like that. Yeah. And the uh, the tapes themselves I think right now hold up to 8 terabytes per cartridge. Oh, nice. So they're very high capacity and it's $50 or something for like an 8 or maybe even less, 30 or 40 bucks for an 8 terabyte tape. And then you get a drive that can mount on a network, so you just plug it in via Ethernet, and if, if you know if you have a nice high-speed you know, connection, then it'll work out really well. Anyone can network to the drive, and you put a tape in there, and it just shows up. It just mounts to your desktop as a drive, and then you can write anything you want to that. Hmm. And now, have you ever gotten an email from your bank that says, we lost your information, or a truck crashed, and your data might have been compromised? Yeah. What most likely happened is that there was a truck with full of LTO tapes that got run off the road by a cow or something and they crashed because I know banks and things like that have been using LTO for a long time. It's, it's been around for a while because it's a very robust uh, data archival format and to my knowledge it's currently the most robust long-term archival format out there versus hard drive versus Blu-ray discs. I know a lot of people use Blu-ray yeah. versus something like an XD cam disc. Um, you know, what's the, sure what's the life of those? If, if, if you know, the, the cow doesn't run the truck off the road, <laughs> what's the life of that tape if you, if you, you know, because I'm thinking personally, I'm like, okay, that'd be great if I added that to my system and then had a way that every week or so I take those tapes off site and put them in my safe deposit mm-hmm. box at Chase or something, you know, mm-hmm. uh, how long are you going to last? They're going to be like 10 years and then I go and check them out and there's dust in there or what? Uh, you know, you'd probably just have to look at the manufacturer's specs. I couldn't tell you offhand, yeah. um, but it's certainly longer than sitting a hard drive on a shelf sure. and not spinning it up, you yep. know, for a while. Yeah. Cause back at my old job, we were, we, they had started with hard drive backup and archival and they would, they bought a little hot swappable drive where you can just pull drives in and out and mm-hmm. hot swap them. Mm-hmm. And they had a whole shelf full of these. And those failed after just a couple of years. Yeah. It's yeah. moving parts, moving. right? It's moving parts yeah. that, that fail. Yeah. yeah. So you get LTO, you, you mount it up, and you probably you don't do it as often because it's a cumbersome process to work with because it's a tape that has to shuttle. Mm-hmm. So you want to do like a big dump all at once. So you would take... You have your all your projects all lined up, and you would flag fifty of them from the past two months, and these are all prepared for archive. Yeah. And then your assistant goes and takes them and dumps, you know, five terabytes all at once. You know, lets it run overnight onto one tape, and then you keep a database of what's on that tape, and you can use various database type um, uh, organizational apps out there that Just to allow catalog you to it. Yeah. Catalog it. Yeah, so then you can search later, you know, what tape is, you know, this thing on. Yep. And then you just take it out, you put it on the shelf, and then when you need it again, you can pull it off and unarchive it, and it's, it's right there. That's interesting. I'm going to have to look, look into that. Uh, before we close this off, um, I also know that you're a podcaster. So 
Let's talk about that a little bit. What What are you podcasting on? I have my own podcast. It's called The Age Grouper. And it is about um, the world, uh, whether you may or may not know that it exists, the world of amateur triathlon. Hmm. Which, uh, like, you live in Southern California? Mm, yeah. Or actually yeah. Northern, Northern California, the Bay Area. Okay. Yeah, the Bay Area. Um, and if, if you take a moment to look out your window and notice, you will see triathletes everywhere. Yeah, I saw, some, I saw some of them this weekend, actually. They were, I live in kind of a new neighborhood, and they were spray-painting finish on the new pavement. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, so I see them everywhere. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole world of amateur athletics in this country that exists, and it's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I've been, I've been training and racing triathlons and mountain bikes since about 1997. So is that 14, 15 years, if I'm doing my math right, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, a long time. Me, uh, a long, yeah, I've been doing long, it with long time ago. <laughs> mm-hmm. And he's been doing it for a while, and we always, you know kicked around the idea of doing it, and we, we were fans of another triathlon podcast that started back in about um, 2004 or so when podcasting was really kind of first starting. Yeah. And we contacted him. It was this guy in Texas, and we would, since I was this tech guy and I knew how to do that tech sort of thing, we would record our own shows like with my iPod, and then we would send it to him when he put it on his show. And we got some emails from some fans saying, hey, you guys should do your own show. So in 2007, we started a show called The Age Grouper. And it's all about amateur triathlon. And we view it from the life of age group triathletes. Because when you register for a race, you sign up based on your age group. You know, I'm a male 30 to 34 or a female 18 to 24 or whatever it be. You have your age group all they call it worthy age groupers, and then there's the pros, and then there's the kids or something like that. Yeah. So we come at the show from the yeah. perspective of the age groupers and the kind of chat you hear before and after the race, people just BSing, you know, around, uh, you know, at the, at the after party and those kind of things. That's cool. So we've been out since 2007. So, you know, we, we do pretty well. It's a, it's a good time. That's great. So that's a, they, where can people go to see that? It's theagegrouper.com? Yep. Yep, we're at theagegrouper.com, and uh, we're on iTunes. You can just search for, you can just search for triathlon or search for the Age Grouper in iTunes, and you can find us there. All right, and if people want to see some of your photography and that sort of thing, is there any place they can go online to check that out? Uh, I'd say the best place to go is depaul.edu, and uh, you can search for uh, media and multimedia and depaul.edu, and you can find out what I do there. Very cool. All right, Jeff. Thanks. Thanks for taking the time today to chat with me. It's been educational, and I'm actually seriously. I'm going to go Google um, tape drive backup systems that might work for making me a little bit saner with my data. <laughs> well, you got to save up a little nest egg because it's initially it's a bit of an investment, but um, you know it definitely pays off in the long run, especially if you lose data. Yeah, definitely. Well, it can't be. Yeah, it can't be more than losing data, like you said. I can. It, the data that I have right now is irreplaceable. I can't imagine what would happen or how crazy I would be if something happened to it. So, yeah. And I'm, uh, I'm heading off to NAB next week with the specific intent to see if anyone's come up with some sort of Thunderbolt connectivity for LTO because that kind of, to me, is the big thing where you can have your media drives with a LTO drive attached to it all connected through Thunderbolt and that. That to me would be. Maybe we'll have to try to connect to you while you're at NAB. See if you can do a man on the street thing or something. 
Oh, that might be cool. Yeah. yeah. Hey, we'll do it from your iPhone, right? Yeah. yeah. Why not? For sure. Cool. All right. Well, thanks, sir. And uh, I'll let you get back to your, your school day. Okay. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks, man. All right, that's it for this episode. If you'd like to keep up with everything in the TWIP universe, be sure to check us out at thisweekinphoto.com. Also, please support the show by leaving us a comment on iTunes. And speaking of iTunes, be sure to check out the TWIP podcast app. It's a handy way to keep up with the shows as soon as they are released. And finally, if you're looking for me, Frederick Van Johnson, you can find me and my various projects at frederickvan.com. And with that, it is time to take that lens cap off. This Week in Photo is a PixelCore.tv production. Produced by Suzanne Llewellyn with technical producers John Riley and Alutha Jamakar. 